Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined by my co-host and star of this show, Jim Rooney. This is Toe the Rubber, episode 267 on our network here. And uh, before we bring Jim in and welcome him back to his show, just want to thank our audience. Getting Closing in on 50,000 subscribers right now. We just had a big, uh, big reward for our, our hosts here this past week, where we're now part of iHeart Podcast Stream. So that was a big coup for the work we're putting in. We want to thank our audience for, for driving that. Um, continue to do what you're doing. Download, listen, like, subscribe, rate, and review. Give Jim five stars today. I can already predict it's going to be a great show for him. Give him five stars and um, write some great comments down there uh, for, for the show. Last week, as our audience remembers, we talked about the question, when is it time for my son to pitch? And and I'll let Jim introduce his topic today before, uh, right after I introduce him to the show because it's a follow-up on that, um, which is what I love about not just his shows, but the seamless seamlessness of all of our shows here. So with that, uh, Jim, welcome back to your show. Thank you, Dave. Hello, everybody. I know uh, th- this week we're in the Southeast here. We're, we're, we're weathering storms, no pun intended. Uh, we've got the hurricanes coming through here, but we're still driving the show hard here uh, at a 9 a.m. clip on a Wednesday morning here. So last week you talked in great detail. I got a lot of good feedback from parents as to, you know, when should my son or daughter, I guess, uh, start to pitch. And today you've got, a, you've got a, I guess, the next step to that um, that you want to cover with the audience. Kind of share that with them. Yes. I mean, during the course of the week, some things were popping up, uh, some questions that I answered, um, some situations with the clients that I'm dealing with, parents' questions also. Um, and then I saw the uh, uh, an article, you know, Offhand, I don't remember the title, but it basically was the sweeper, and that that opened up all kinds of line of questions in my mind and thought processes and different things I've dealt with in the past. Um, and uh, it was a picture of Altani. Now, of course, we know that uh, he has some some significant UCL tear, so he's not going to pitch for the rest of the year. He's just going to hit. Um, and even though it's still photography, most of the posts that have pictures of him in the article, uh, APnews.com, what is a sweeper? A look at the pitch taking over Major League Baseball, and it has the picture of Otani. And what I thought was interesting about it, besides the, the pitch itself, is that in the picture, the ball is approximately 10 feet away from his release point. So he's let go of the ball significantly, and yet his back hip and his back leg is still on the rubber, toes on the rubber. And it looks as if his hip is going to come in a linear direction instead of that rotational force. So it kind of fed into some of the things that have been going on. Um, I think I brought up last week a longtime friend and co-worker, Tommy Craig, longtime uh, Major League Baseball head athletic trainer. I mean, he kind of went off in a post of pay attention, parents. You see what's going on. The two best, oh, yeah, yeah. Best yeah. And, and it's just, you know, it just, 
it, it just triggered in my mind all these different things that, that people are seeing and listening to and hearing and all the things that are being taught out there. And it just, so I look at the term, the sweeper, and then I started watching, um, you know, the old, uh, pitch ninja guy on Twitter. So he's breaking down one pitch and then I, I just put all the so-called sweepers together. And then by luck last night, I believe, uh, Michael King got a start for the Yankees and they talk about how his stuff plays as a uh, starter. So they give him an audition for next year, I guess the, the rest of the season. And one of his turnarounds is his development of the sweeper. And, um, it gave me flashbacks to some of my scouting days. One story where I'm working for the Toronto Blue Jays and I go in to see the, uh, I believe it's NCAA regional at uh, Texas A&M. And um, one of the teams in there is University of Houston. And they have two pretty good pitchers. One pitch for Team USA and also played second base and a closer. And uh, what I was asked to do is, please sit on that closer and tell me what you think. Okay. So I watch him the uh, first day. He gets into the game. It's a non-save situation. The team's up by five or six runs. And sometimes it gets a little difficult to evaluate a closer when he's pitching in those situations. And sure enough, that's what happens. He, he really wasn't his sharpest, but he did fine. And uh, his team... Uh, I believe the University of Houston wins the game. So I call up um, the front office in Toronto. The director of scouting is on a, a conference call. So his assistant says, what do you think? And I said, well, uh, it was a non-safe situation. Let's give it another day. I want to see this guy in, in the real heat of battle. But there's a couple of things that stick out to me that are a little problematic. And he says to me, do you realize this guy's going in the first round? And I said, okay, he's going in the first round. I, I was asked by the director of scouting to come give my opinion on what I see out of this guy. I'm, I'm giving it. Um, let's understand something. College closer going in the first round. I mean, you're kind of thinking you're going to give him a little tune-up in double A and then hopefully in September be a call-up and really help you know the back end of your bullpen in some way, especially if it was a – a push for the pennant, push for the playoffs. So I'm, I'm trying to envision this guy as a finished product. Um, so the next day he gets into the game and, uh, and he's throwing the heck out of the ball. I mean, he's got a great arm, but I'm watching him as he's getting out hitters and he saved the game. So his performance was very, very good, but he's not getting anybody out in the strike zone. His stuff does not play in the strike zone. And I know, you know, with, with the modern numbers that we use, that we're looking to get as many chases outside the strike zone as possible and different things like that. Uh, you could relate it to, you know, kind of the pitcher looking to really bury or humiliate the hitter type of thing. And um, that is great. But if you can't get anybody out in the strike zone, Major League hitters are not going to continually swing at stuff out of the strike zone. Um, so I, I, I give a call back and uh, the following afternoon after the game, and sure enough, I, I get the assistant director again, and he asks, um, how did it look today? 
I said, oh, he's got he's got really good stuff. I said, there's one thing though. It's just part of his delivery. Um, he doesn't really command the baseball. Um, heavy sink on the inner half off the plate to right handers. He's very tough on, and then kind of this slurvy breaking ball. It's not a curveball. It's not a slider. Um, out of the zone, you know, low and away to, to right-handed hitters. So I just don't see that playing. You know, if you want to take this guy in the first round and and he's going to be a reliever, I just don't see he's going to have to tighten his stuff up, which is possible. But, you know, I wouldn't think that this is a fast-rising individual. So, he, again, he says, but he's going in the first round way before we pick, I think, now. I said, okay, well, good luck to the team that picks him. And – over my scouting career, you end up seeing a lot of these type of college pitchers. Another one pops up, pitched at University of Miami. He had never lost a game in college. He was a junior, getting ready for the draft. Uh, Miami's playing at Clemson. I'm now working for the Milwaukee Brewers as the pitching coordinator. The director of scouting asked if I can go take a look at a couple of guys before the draft. So I go see this guy and... Uh, Slender built, no hips, no hip mobility. Hips don't work. Kind of upright in his delivery. Uh, doesn't get the center of gravity past the front hip. A, a lot of red flags are popping up. And then I'm watching his pitching. Same thing. Nice sinkers in under the right-hander's hands, but not a lot of them on the plate. Slurves away. Not a lot of them on the plate. Uh, in... Just by chance, maybe I was the bad luck charm. He suffers his first uh, first college loss. But even besides the performance aspect of it on that day, it's just I don't see that kind of stuff playing. So in those in those days, you know, you would look at a guy trying to throw a curveball. Maybe he doesn't have the uh, natural ability to spin the ball. Now he starts to hook it out front, and we call it a slurve, and and it's a big kind of slurving ball. So you're like, well, are we going to be able to get this guy to throw a curveball, or do we have to work on him to teach him how to throw a slider properly and then tighten up that slurve? And, and that was always a question when you were developing pitchers or even going into the draft to see, you know, where pitchers ranked on, on your scale. Um, and – then we fast forward to the sweeper. Um, now, the craziest thing about the sweeper is from, you know, from last week's show, we talked about when should my, my child start pitching. And then, of course, the natural follow-up after that is, even for kids that have been pitching, is when the controversy of when should we start throwing curveballs. Now, you'll see in, uh, in different little leagues and different rec leagues and you know, around the country, there's specific rules, only fastballs and change-ups or no breaking balls or different things like that. So it brings me back to a couple of things. The first one was um, when I worked uh, for a short time at West Point United States Military Academy, head coach was uh, Danny Roberts, the eldest son of the Hall of Fame pitcher, Robin Roberts. And because of that opportunity, besides contact I had with Robert Roberts when he was the coach at University of South Florida, um, when I was a freshman at Cornell, um, every summer we would do uh, camps at West Point, uh, sleepover camps. And at the end of the week, Robin Roberts would come and make an appearance and sign autographs and talk to all the 
the dads and the parents and stuff like that and give a talk to the players and different things. And a lot of times his talk was centered around the best pitch in baseball, even sometimes the best two-strike pitch in baseball is a well-located fastball. So here you're hearing it from Rob Roberts. And then as I um, remembered back to my teenage years when Catfish Hunter came over from the Oakland A's to the New York Yankees, they used to have an expression for catfish. Uh, now, my dad would watch Catfish Hunter pitch and say he's the modern-day Robin Roberts. My dad, even though he was a big Yankee fan, loved the way that Robin Roberts pitched. So I took that to note, and I'm watching Catfish Hunter, and then you're starting to hear stories from uh, players, and they say, when you face Catfish Hunter, it's the most comfortable 0 for 4 I've ever had in my life, meaning we're rolling over on balls, we're hitting you know easy two hop ground balls to the infield because even though you get a fastball to hit, it's so well located, you just you just can't really get the barrel of bat on it. And then later on, when I started coaching, you would hear all kinds of different things about fastball command and. One time when Cliff Lee was being interviewed, and it was during his Cy uh, Young year with the Phillies, he said one of the things he he sees as a problem with young pitchers coming to the big leagues and young pitchers that he sees in spring training is that everybody's got a third or fourth pitch, but yet they've never perfected their first ball, the first pitch, their fastball, because their fastball command is way below average. So... Here we are, three, uh, I, don't, I don't remember back if Rob Roberts, there were Cy Youngs at that time, but I mean, three great pitchers in the major leagues, and they're all talking about fastball command. Um, I got a question for you. When, so going back to, and it leads up to where we're at right now, when the big league club was evaluating the closer, saying he was a, you know, he was a closer in college, he was going to be a first-round draft pick uh, as a closer, when you're evaluating a closer versus starter and you kind of just started hitting on it, um, what's the difference in terms of type of pitches, number of pitches? Is there a velocity difference? Is it, is it all about, like you just mentioned, command of a certain number of pitches? What's, what's the divide line between, between that distinction? Well, um, for me, the things that would occur is, you know, you're not really, you're not really looking for a high school guy. That's a, that's a relief pitcher. Um, but when you go to college, and especially in the in the in the major conferences, you know what people look for. It, it changes with time over time. Like right now, you see a lot of different guys. Uh, you know, being even if they were starters, being converted to relievers because their stuff plays, and they think it's a quick way to get them to the big leagues uh, to help the major league club. On a whole when you're evaluating a, a pitcher, there's a lot of guys you see that maybe you like their stuff and maybe it even plays in the zone and you, and you like them, but their delivery, they, they, they don't repeat. They don't really command their fastball. Um, if they're not commanding their fastball, it's going to take a longer, a longer time to develop feel for a change up because they don't have a consistent release point. There's some violence in the delivery that you know, if you don't think that you can change it, um, it's gonna it's gonna 
shorten the length of their career or just not allow them the ability to go out and throw 100 pitches in a game. So that's when you start to, to see um, who becomes a starter and who becomes a reliever. For me, it was always their delivery. Uh, all the things in athleticism that we've spoken before about hip mobility, body control, kinesthetic awareness, repeating their delivery, consistent release point. Those are things that all of a sudden show me that this guy has the ability to be a starter. Uh, an example of that is when I saw uh, Brandon Woodruff pitch. He had been relegated to the bullpen at Mississippi State, uh, wasn't really pitching. He got an opportunity to make a Tuesday start. Uh, against Southern Miss, so it was kind of a non-conference game, but a rivalry game. And uh, I, th- I, I watched the guy, his body, you know, 6'3", 225. His delivery, his arm action, his body control, his athleticism, athleticism, you know, just shouted to me, he's a starter. And then he's throwing 92 to 95 mile an hour bowling balls and on the hands of right-handers. Uh, he's commanding the baseball. Um, so then he screamed out to me, starter. I mean, you could see it. And, and sometimes it's that the guy is a starter and looks like a starter more so than in the future. Is he going to be a reliever? Um, you know, getting back to the guy at University of Houston, he ended up being a first-round pick. Team sent him to double-A. By September, he was in the big leagues. I would say by two years later, he's out of baseball because he just wasn't going to stick. You know, um, even as a reliever, even with, you know, quality stuff, he's not getting anybody out in the strike zone and the type of pitches he's throwing just don't really complement each other. Um, And when you look at how pitches complement each other in the zone, I was sitting at Yankee Stadium one day between home plate, in the box seats between home plate and the Yankees' uh, first base dugout. And Ron Guidry was pitching. It was the year he was, uh, my memory's correct, 25 and three, you know, the best year of his career. And he's pitching against the Milwaukee Brewers. We're talking about Yount, Malter, Gantner, Don Money, Cecil Cooper, Ben Ogilvie, Gorman Thomas. um, And the DH was Larry Heisel. And he came into Yankee Stadium that day. I believe he was leading the American League in hitting, hitting 356, right handed batter. Um, people would remember, you know, some of his quality years with the Twins. And uh, Ron Guidry at the time, you know, they say that a starter needs three pitches, but Ron Guidry at the time had two pitches a fastball. Um, in today's modern guns, probably low to mid nineties and, um, and a, what I call a left-handed slider and the slider Gidry coming up through the minor leagues was a fastball curveball pitcher. And the slider was taught to him by Sparky Lyle, who only threw left-handed sliders as a, as a, uh, all-star and Cy Young winning closer for the Yankees before him. And Gidry had perfected it to where. I'm standing at the plate uh, in my seat watching the plate. And both pitches came into the batter looking exactly the same. And then just as the batter would be about to put his foot down, so the ball was just in front of the plate, 
the fastball would go up and away to a righty, and the slider would go down and into a righty, back knees, as they call it. And on that day, he struck out 18 Brewers, and he struck out Larry Heisel three or four times. And I just remember the last at bat, it was called strike three. Larry Heisel took his helmet off, tipped his cap to Guidry, put the helmet and the bat on home plate, and walked back to the dugout. So here's an example where those pitches might have ended up just out of the strike zone. But at the time that the hitter has to make a decision whether they're swinging or not, they were in the strike zone and they looked identical. Um, Whereas with different guys I've seen in my past, the pitch never comes in in the same area. They're they're two different pitches. Um, An example of how that even affects major league pitchers is I don't remember the year exactly, but Roger Clements becomes a Yankee. And one of those years, right right out of spring training or early in the year, he's dealing with a, a groin issue, a pulled groin. And he attempts to pitch through it for the whole year. Now, at that time, Clements's stuff was fastball, four-seamer, probably a little bit of a two-seamer, slider, and split-finger fastball. And his outpitch was his split-finger fastball. But he didn't have the ability because of the groin issue to get the fastball consistently down in the zone. And the slider lost a little bit of its bite. Um, So it didn't have that late life on it. And he struggled that year. He battled because he's a competitor. But he struggled that year because he had no pitch down in the zone that looked like the split. So the second the split was down in the zone, the hitters just laid off it because they knew it was the split and was going to be below. So his fastballs were up. His sliders were a little bit slurvy off the plate. And the split was down in the zone. Well, now he has to start raising that split up to, in order for it to be in the strike zone. And that's where he struggled. Um, so <clears throat> to get back to the pitches, um, especially for young players, so they've developed their fastball. They've developed their fastball command. Okay? And now because they're repeating their delivery and, and getting to a consistent re- release point, it's much easier for them to learn the changeup. And what's important about the changeup is to develop feel. Develop that, feel that pitch just kind of rolling right off that middle finger. Um, one time when I was learning my changeup, and I mean, it's sad to say as far as from a development point, but I, I really didn't learn a changeup till I was in pro ball. And um, the thing is, is you're a young guy and all you've been taught and all you've been thought about is, you know, throw harder and uh, you're going to get guys out. And you watch it. Guys that throw hard, get a lot of guys out. And then now they're asking, oh, you want me to throw the ball slower? So the confidence level is pretty low because this is this is uncharted territory for you. <clears throat> so you start throwing the change up, and um, what you don't realize because sometimes people they just don't express it in a way that you can understand it. Your change up is your fastball, and just the grip's different. And once you learn to trust the grip, and once you learn that there's three things that make a pretty good change up: arm speed, ball speed, and location. Now, you don't have to be perfect. If you get two out of those three right, you still have a pretty decent pitch. 
And when you start thinking that way, all of a sudden you start using that changeup. So the interesting thing that happened to me was um, one instructional ball. I believe it was in 19, fall of 1982. <clears throat> Rick Dempsey, the major league catcher from the Orioles, came down, and he's an instructional ball. And, and I got pretty close to him. Uh, of course, Rick started his career in, a, in the big leagues with the Yankees as a backup catcher. And then he was traded to the uh, Orioles, along with Tippy Martinez and a couple other guys. And he, he was probably the best, if not one of the best defensive catchers in the game. And he's very, very intelligent. He handled pitchers phenomenally. He had a great pitching staff to work with. So now he's down in instruction ball. And um, I just asked him one day, uh, like, what are you doing here? And he goes, oh, I'm learning how to switch hit, which was a joke in itself, but this is the way he expressed it. And, you know, he was known as a fun-loving guy, and so we just went with it. And then I realized that every time I made a start in instructional ball, he was catching me. And the first start was against um, the Texas Rangers and their first-round pick, Ron Darling, who I had attempted to try to hit against when I was a freshman at Cornell, and he was a junior at Yale. I was going to say, he was a, another Ivy League guy like yourself. Yes, and unhittable. Great athlete. He could hit. He could play right field. He could throw. And pitching-wise, I mean, I, I'd have to say up until that point in time, besides sitting close to the field in a major league game, as the best pitcher I had ever seen. What made him unhittable at that time as a college kid? Um, well, again, the guns are a little different. So my recollection is it's, you know, 94-95 at the knees with an unhittable slider on the black. And it's just he just pounded the strikes home. He repeated his delivery. He had great body control, great kinesthetic awareness. Everything about him, it just was like, um, you know, scream to you that th this guy's unbelievable. That's what I always remember. It seemed like it was every time he he, he grabbed the ball, it was his pitch on his terms. That's kind of how he 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 had. You said body control. I mean, that, that's that's what I remember, darling. Now I didn't see him when you did at Yale, but as he progressed up the line, just really smooth, repeatable delivery. And, uh, as you, as you pointed out last show in this show, that command of that fastball sets it all up for you. Yes. Yes. So I'm, I'm, um, here's Rick Dempsey catching me. We're at the Payson complex in St. Petersburg. We shared that complex with the Mets and, uh, I'm facing the Texas Rangers and Ron Darling is warming up in the bullpen. So I'm warming up and, my thoughts at the time, because I mean, I'm you know, I'm not going to kid you. I'm cocky Irish kid from the Bronx, thinking, okay, all right, here's my opportunity to prove uh, how good I am, going up against Ron Darling, because in my mind he's unhittable. So the first inning starts, and uh, I kid you not, we hit about nine line drives in a row and score five runs, and 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 I'm going, whoa. Because back then in the instruction ball, it was the top 25 prospects in the organization. It wasn't just young guys. Now I'm thinking to myself, oof, I know we're good, but their leadoff hitter led the American Association at that time in AAA in hitting. Their number three litter hitter led the American Association in home runs. So I'm thinking, well, if we're good, I'm sure they got some good guys too. So I take the mound, and, and for the first time in my life, I kid you not, um, 
I go to take the sign from the catcher and, and my legs turn to rubber and I step off the rubber, go to the rods and back. And I throw the first pitch to a left-handed hitter, the leadoff guy, and I nearly take his head off. And in the second pitch, he dives in and I hit him in the, in the arm and he's going, uh, he's a little upset and they take him off the field. And, uh, Ricky Jones, the MVP of the Southern League that year, comes into me and goes, you got these guys scared to death, way to go. And next thing you know, Rick Dempsey's proceeding to uh, call a lot of change-ups. So that was my kind of like baptism by fire with my change-up. And uh, long story short, we won the game 5 nothing. Um, now, why, would he, why did he decide to call change-ups? Well, I think the reason why he was there was they wanted me to really work on my changeup. Okay. And, um, and you know, what are you going to do when you're a 20, 21-year-old uh, left-handed pitcher from the Northeast and uh, one of the best defensive catchers in the big leagues is now catching, he puts down a changeup. You're going to shake him off? <laughs> oh, no, no. I didn't know if there was a strict, other than you developing and if there was a, based on how you started, if there was a throwing the changeup would, would slow something down in yeah. you. And um, so the next start, we're over at, uh, it's in St. Pete at the time, downtown St. Pete, uh, Al Lang Stadium, and we're playing the Minnesota Twins. And there's Dempsey, and he's like, all right, I got you today, lefty, and let's go get him. And, and he tells me, he goes, you see that guy warming up over there? And uh, just by chance, I mean, how did it end up this way? I have no idea. But who's starting for the Twins? Their first-round pick from the year before, Frank Viola. Now, everybody that remembers college baseball is my freshman year, Cornell. We lost in a playoff to Darling and Yale, even though we had them beat. But then Darling became Superman and uh, beat us with the bat. And, and the last three innings, he might have struck out nine guys for a complete game. So I faced Darling the first game, and now I'm facing Frank Viola the second game. Well, when Yale beat us for the Ivy League title, they then went to Eastern Regional, uh, NCAAs, and it was the infamous or famous, you would say, uh, Darling-Viola matchup. Viola was at St. John's. Darling threw a no-hitter, and I think in 11 innings lost one nothing to Frank Viola. Uh, and... Frank Viola and John Franco, who was another pitcher at St. John's, then went to the College World Series. And both of them were juniors in that year, respectively. They were first-round picks, um, Darling by Texas and Viola by the Minnesota Twins. So on my second start, now in a stadium instead of a complex outlying stadium, I'm pitching against Frank Viola. And Rick Dempsey says to me, you see this guy? He's got pretty good stuff. Your stuff's better than his. But what he has is he's got a changeup. So today, you're going to learn when and where to throw your changeup. Okay, let's get him. And uh, I throw another shutout and beat Frank Viola. And sure enough, I'm throwing changeups whenever Rick Dempsey, and he's putting down a lot of them. And I'm getting these easy pop-ups and these easy weak contacts. And my mind is like... The light turns on and the, the pitching epiphany occurred. <laughs> this is what pitching's supposed to be about. And uh, 
you start having confidence, then you start developing feel for your changeup, and you got fastball, you got fastball command, you got a changeup, and you got feel. And then we get to that question. When and how should we start throwing curveballs? Well, the thing that you always hear is, you know, there's some people that put a specific age. Well, I wouldn't let my son throw curveballs till he's 15. Okay. I mean, if that's your plan, I, I can understand it. But then the, the, the player gets to 15 and he starts throwing curveballs in a game. Now, even before we get into is he throwing them properly or not, it's the fact that has he been throwing them for the last year or two in, in warm-ups or practice or just playing catch with his dad or with his buddies or, or, or working on it with a pitching instructor? I mean, I wouldn't just take – if I decided to go in the weight room to squat, I wouldn't just put a one-rep max on there and just go do it, and yet I hadn't squatted in, in my entire life. No, I'd, I'd start out with a six-foot closet dolly you know, wooden stick, and I would learn the proper form, and I would – do body weight squats and then I work up to it and there's a whole process. And we understand that process when we go to a weight room or if I'm going to run a marathon, I'm not going to just go out my first day of training, run 15 miles. I'm going to, I'm going to work up to it and I'm going to build up to it. Um, you know, you go back to the old days of the Soviet Union with the introduction of periodization and training modules and training protocols like that, that all makes sense. But yet, we say we're not going to throw curveballs to a specific age, but then we never condition the muscles, condition the bodies, condition the movement patterns, learn how to do it efficiently, learn how to do it properly. We just all of a sudden the magic day comes and it's like we're throwing curveballs. So what, are, go ahead. what are some build-up what are some build up things you'd mentioned? Are you throwing it through warmest? Because I as you know, I've got kids about that age now, one our older boy. Um, we we've been more concerned about him throwing properly and, and learning, like you said, learning to locate the baseball with a four seam and a two seam grip comfortably and then a change up. But we've been throwing a change up for almost a year now with just regular when he does his warm ups, at least a couple of days a week and then sometimes after, just to get that arm speed up and to get the feel, like you said, before we even put him on the mound doing that stuff. But with the curveball now, what are what are some ways to I guess ease into throwing it in the game? Well for me there's a couple of factors. And if we Think back to, uh, remember back to last week, we talked about the extrinsic factors, uh, age, skeletal age, uh, you know, um, closure of the growth, you know, um, growth plates in the bones, different things like that. The maturation levels, both physically and psychologically and emotionally. Because remember now, we're getting to a point where we're throwing curveballs but now we're in a tight spot. What do we do? Do we try too hard? Do we hook it? Where do we go? Are we having a tough outing? Do we throw too many curveballs? Do we alter our plan? You know, there's a lot of things that go into it as far as what was discussed last week. So that's the same type of thing that we have to look at. Um, the other thing is, you know, going back to Cliff Lee's statement, why are so many people working on their third and fourth pitch when they haven't perfected their first one? Um, let's get to a point where if we're repeating our delivery and we're starting to control, even at a young age, control the fastball and throw strikes, and there's some repetition to our delivery, and we've developed change-up feel, so the feel on the change-up has now uh, confirmed the fact uh, 
that we're moving in a positive direction as far as the delivery and as far as the feel for our release point and the, and the ability to repeat. Those are other factors that now come into play because now they're going to help you develop the proper release point and the, top, and the, and the ability to throw a curveball, to spin a curveball. Um, the things that I, I wish were told to me when I was younger was that um, the pitcher isn't responsible for making the ball curve. The pitcher is responsible for getting his fingers his middle finger and his index finger to the front of the baseball and pull down on the front of the baseball at release point. The problem when we start throwing curveballs is whether we have this, you know, mind connection with wiffle ball or because we, we see guys uh, on the television throw them. And we think we're responsible for making it curve. So we start to do all types of things in our arm action and our release point out front to manipulate the baseball to make it curve, all right? Once again, the emotional and psychological factors. Um, with your changeup, if you trust your grip and you just throw a fastball, you'll develop, you'll feel for your changeup. If you trust the process of getting your fingers in front of the ball and taking away the responsibility that you do not make the ball curve, the spin that you place on the ball because the fingers are down through the front of the ball, right, reacts with the environment. A humid day, a high altitude, a low altitude, a windy day, the wind direction, all those type of things. A crisp, a crisp cold day, a warm humid day. Those are things that interact with the laces and make the ball curve. That is extremely important to be understood. And that's when the psychological and emotional maturation becomes extremely important. Um, now, if you're just playing catch, right, you're doing your, let's say you're throwing program and you're playing catch. And even if it was just a fun catch in your backyard and you've been taught how to get that curveball, how to get that hand in the right position on the ball, to make the four seams work in the direction that you want them to work. And you work on spinning the baseball. You're not looking at velocity. You're just playing catch. If you're playing catch with your buddy, you're playing catch with your dad. You're not going to start firing the ball at a hundred percent or 120% on a fastball on a four seam or when you're just playing catch with your, with your buddy or dad, it's the same with that curveball. It takes away the whole velocity and the performance orientated thought process. And it gives you, let's spin the ball. Let's spin the ball. Let's spin the ball. It doesn't matter how fast it goes. Let's see how we can spin the ball. Very similar to doing throwing drills to how to get through the baseball for your fastball, how to, how, how the fingers stay on, how the fingers pull down on those seams. It's the same exact thing. It's just your positioning of your fingers on the baseball at release point is different. So all the things that you've done in your throwing programs to help you with good four-seam uh, uh, four spin on your fastball out front, with good spin on your changeup out front because it's consistent feel and consistent release point is exactly the same as your, as your curveball. Your hand positioning, your finger positioning on the ball is just different. And the goal of your curveball in the learning process is to spin the baseball. Now, during that process, you are now training the muscles and different things, one, 
how to do it efficiently, two, correctly, and three, spinning the baseball. So the muscular endurance factors, the muscular strength factors, the strength in your fingers, the strength in your hands, the strength in your wrist, the flexibility in your wrist, all then come into play in a gradual process targeted towards that day. You're going to throw them in a game. And then when you throw them in a game, you start to understand that it's your third pitch. You're going to throw fastballs and change-ups, and you're going to throw occasional curveballs. And most likely at that age, you, what, you're going to, what your goal would be is throw that curveball to the back of the plate or throw that curveball to the front of the plate, down and out of the zone. It becomes a teaser. So it starts out as a teaser, or, or sometimes I kid with my young guys, it's a tantalizer. Uh, I think back to the first time I saw Jim Palmer throw his curveball, and I thought it was slow-pitch softball. And I was like, holy mackerel, how, can, how, how come big league hitters don't hit that? If we take that mindset, then the natural buildup of movement, muscles, release point are worked into the equation before we're looking to throw the ball in the game. Now, here's the problems that arise. And this is why I think it's um, extremely dangerous nowadays when young guys are watching Major League Baseball games and um, and the announcers like, well, ever since he came up with that sweeper, he's become a dominating pitcher. And it's now flooding. I mean, the Associated Press News wrote the article of the sweeper. It, it wasn't a sports page. It wasn't a, a, a local reporter covering a, a local pitcher or, or, their, or their local major league team. This is the Associated Press news that this has become, in their mind, a phenomenon. And they're trying to figure out, what is this? The problem when a young player sees the way that nasty breaking ball moved, he attempts to duplicate it. And in trying to duplicate it, he most likely is not going to stay with his natural arm action and his natural arm slot. The pitcher, the young pitcher is responsible for spinning the baseball. His arm slot or arm angle is responsible for the shape or angle of that breaking ball. You now watch somebody else who throws from a different slot different arm action, and of course, they're, they're big leaguers, so they're bigger and stronger and, and well-conditioned to do this, and you attempt to duplicate, duplicate it, you start finding guys attempting, it naturally occurs, they, they start to try to manipulate the baseball out front, and they start doing improper things with their arm, and that's what leads to the injury. It's not about, oh, if I throw a curveball, I'm going to get injured. No, if you throw a curveball improperly, you're going to get injured. If you think you're going to transform your curveball, which even if you've got a good one and it happens naturally and you spin the ball naturally and the fingers get out front and you have nice, let's say, I'll give you very few 12 to 6s are out there anymore, but 11 to 5 or 11.30 to 5.30, and it's effective, but now you want to make it nasty. And now you start trying too hard. 
Now you get the hand out front, and instead of the fingers and that hand just getting in that natural half turn at the shoulder in that cocking position so the fingers can get in front of the ball properly, we start what I call hooking the ball out front. When we hook the ball out front and we attempt to manipulate it, or sometimes, you know, guys have taught, like, you, you get out front and you, and, you, and you pull down and across. Um, what happens to your arm in that position is the humeral head starts pushing back to the posterior side of the glenoid labrum. So it starts pushing back. It's uh, very similar to the, the action of a football lineman always coming out and and, and trying to block the defensive guy and getting their hands up and, and hitting the pads. That constant pounding is driving the humeral head out the back, the posterior side, the back side of the shoulder. Now the humeral head starts subluxing, so it's moving in and out, sliding in and out of the, of, of the joint, even if it's just small. The labrum now starts getting stretched in the younger pitcher. The musculature and the ligaments and tendons are, are not necessarily as strong and ready to do this like a major leaguer. Subluxation turns into impingements. Impingements turns into tears. Tears turns into, you know, the rotator cuff problems and the surgeries. All from trying to manipulate the baseball out front. And that's the fear that happens when a player starts to throw a curveball, and even if he's got the gift that he can spin the ball properly, he attempts to manipulate the ball out front. Now, when you're talking, and I like how you put it, you, you broke down the responsibility of the pitcher, and I want our audience to grab onto that. The responsibility of the pitcher is to spin the ball, but the shape of the pitch, you're talking 12, 12-6, 11-5, that comes from your natural arm slot. And the arm slot for the curve fastball changeup should all be the same. Yes. Yeah. That's the goal. Yeah. That's what you mean by shape when you're saying shape. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. But now you you hear all these studies and you and the and the, the poor young players and their parents, you see these studies and they see different things or or maybe they haven't, but they're coaches, they're young coaches. Okay. Um so put put the youth of the coach with his um, willingness to put development aside so that he has a winning ball club, um, which you see in a lot of travel organizations. And not only are they calling too much curveballs, like it becomes the number one or number two pitch for that young pitcher, but they're not, they don't have the ability to see the manipulation. They're only seeing the result. Um, and then you see the different shapes. Um, so my concern with this term, the sweeper, is um, is it a curveball gone bad? Is it a slider that's, so, that's too big? Those are pitches that we can learn to throw um, naturally, so to speak. Um, but to attempt to manipulate the ball out front in order to acquire the result that you want or that you see um, on the TV screen is, I use this term a lot, but it, it is a res- recipe for disaster. Uh, that's the difficulty in that whole thing. Um, 
And I'll give you an example. And I've used this individual a couple of times, but I work with a young guy. So at 12 years old, he started out coming to me for pitching. Everything was working pretty good. It got to the point where we were going to spin some curveballs when he was with me. And he wasn't supposed to do it anywhere else. After we did it for a while, okay, when you're at home in the backyard, do it with your dad. Told the dad what to look for, what to work on. And from the first time that I showed him how to do it properly, he had the natural gift that he could spin the spin the baseball uh, outstanding. It was he was going to be a natural as he matured at throwing curveballs. So the the day comes that he's going to use it as the third pitch in a game. He's on a 45-foot mound, and we, there's no problems, no problems. Dad, dad films some of the games. I, I watch them, the thing, everything, everything's very good. Now, this is the same, same player that I've spoke about in the past where he moves to the bigger field. He's still kind of tall and slender, doesn't physically mature as fast as uh, his, some of his teammates in his competition. Loses a little confidence on the mound, starts trying too hard. And um, goes down the path where he gets away from his natural throwing slot, gets, natural for, gets away from the natural ability to spin the baseball and starts to manipulate it out front. And then it all comes from trying too hard, from being results orientated, from not sticking with the process and all the other things. I mean, you know, his fastball control kind of deteriorates. Other things go backwards. He starts losing his release point. And now it's, you know, we're not at square one, but we got to get him back to relaxing, believing in yourself, doing your thing, repeating your delivery, trust the natural spin you have on the ball. So when you look at a young pitcher and all of a sudden, for whatever reason, um, he starts not repeating his delivery. He starts trying too hard. The fastball control is starting to suffer. I wouldn't put him in a game that next weekend and, you know, start calling 40% curveballs on the poor guy. That's the difficulty that I see. We have to pay attention to what's going on um, in all his pitches to, art, to start to understand when's the appropriate time to not only work on the curveball, but the uh, number of curveballs you would, you would call in a game. The, the natural reaction to a lot of young coaches and a lot of coaches that are out there to win is all of a sudden they get this guy with a good curveball and they don't pay attention to the signals that are being shown to you out there. And those signals could be, you know, he's at, he's at 50 pitches. He's starting to fatigue. He's not maintaining the consistent delivery. He's not maintaining the consistent release point. And in that inning, they call 10 curveballs. That's where we run into the problems. That's where a badly thrown fastball, is there a chance you could get hurt? Yes, there is, especially with all the elbow elbow uh, situations we've spoke about, low elbow, front elbow, pushing action, catapult action. 
but it's more likely that a bad thrown curveball, no matter what you want to call it, is going to lead to some problems down the road. And this is the part that I think isn't taken seriously into consideration when you're looking at young guys um, throw a breaking ball. You hit a you hit a great point, and we just actually we we have a tournament coming up this weekend. We'll be down by you, and I like the way that they run their their events because their stipulations on pitchers. Now, albeit we're dealing with older kids now, um, but I, I often get scared by the older kids because they have developed so many bad habits to this point that I feel like we're we're breaking them back down now to, to the point you're making today where, hey, let's start locating the fastball across 17 inches. Then let's split the plate in half and do the same. And let's hit the four quadrants before we start looking at a, a secondary pitch. Let's learn to locate. But their pitching rules are, are uh, it's like they come full circle. It's We want the, the, the skippers, the coaches, the adults to use their intelligence when they're administering whether it's pitch counts or innings or however they're handling their pitchers. And they keep a close eye on it and they have no problem grabbing a guy aside and saying, Hey, you're, you're, you're throwing that kid too much, or they're, they're very hands-on with it in that regard. I like it as a teaching component to coaches out there. Cause when we see these events, you know, we see these kids going out there, as you're saying, they'll throw two innings on a Saturday morning, two innings on a Saturday afternoon. So now within the rules, they still have more games to go. And there's so much focus on those external things that, hey, let's see if we can get these kids, this kid eight innings over four days so we can win a ring, as opposed to what you're talking about, where you're saying, hey, let's, let's, let's disregard this, this need, this inertia for immediate success. And let's get into, hey, this kid's not looking right on his curveball. And it may mean that he's got to throw more fastballs and changeups today. And it may mean he's going to get hit a little bit more, but it's about the overall development of the kid, not, not winning a ring on a weekend. So I hope the parents are getting that message loud and clear right now. And there is a way to tell, as Jim's describing today, when a kid's ready. And even if he is ready, when he's got to take that step backwards or sideways. Yes. Yes. We cannot um, overstate the importance of monitoring fatigue in these young pitchers. And if that pitcher is sliding into that fatigue state and you see some inconsistencies in their delivery because maybe they're losing their legs, their legs are getting tired, inconsistencies in their arm slot, uh, maybe the front side's flying open, inconsistencies in their release point, usually based upon trying too hard. Uh, we remember back to the stories of the guy with the good arm. He gets in a jam, and he's just going to throw the heck out of the ball. Kerry Wood related many years ago. A reporter asked him, Kerry, um, you know, the key, you've been having these nagging injuries, and we do know that a lot of these injuries are related to our pitching delivery or, or overall mechanics and um, different things like that. And Kerry uh, very politely interrupted the, uh, the reporter and said, uh, listen, I know what good mechanics, I know what a good delivery is. But I'm going to tell you something. When the base is loaded with no outs in the eighth inning, screw mechanics. I got to get this guy out. Now, when I read that, it really hit home because I had put together a presentation of, uh, some of my philosophy on 
biomechanics and pitching delivery. At the time, I um, called it triple spin. And I went through video and still frame from frame photographs of Kerry Wood and Mark Pryor, because at the time they were at the top of their game, but they all, they keep getting those injuries and eventually uh, ended their careers. Pryor's much shorter than Wood. And I can show you photographs and video of Kerry Wood delivering a pitch with absolutely pristine, perfect or near perfect biomechanics. And then maybe five pitches later or the next next inning or the next game with the most horrible lack of foundation, hyperextended front knee, no center of gravity past the front hip, throwing it all with his arm, pitch. And now this is a major leaguer. And he just said to a reporter, I know what a good delivery is. But when the conflict's at its greatest and the game's on the line, screw the delivery. I got to get outs. So if that's his mindset and that's how the pressures of a big league game affected his consistency, what do you think it's going to happen to a 12-year-old or 10-year-old, 14-year-old, you know, teenager? Especially with, an adult running out of pitch. Especially with an adult kind of fuel on the fire a little bit. Exactly. And, and, and those are the things that we have to, we have to understand. Um, now I'm not a guy that, you know, nowadays in the minor leagues, uh, pitchers are on these pitch counts. We're not talking about a hundred or 105 pitches per game. We're, we're talking about very rarely, um, pitchers in the minor leagues, throwing more than four innings, um, you know, 75 pitches, 65 pitches. Um, conversations with, with pro scouts I know, Will George being one of the Colorado Rockies. There's times he goes into a ballpark and, and he, you know, it's tough to get a handle on some of these pitchers because – they're not out there pitching. They're not out there pitching. Um, an interesting, uh, an interesting situation popped up um, over the past ten days. I'm working on a on an outside project and uh, had the ability, had the opportunity to give a short presentation uh, to uh, one of the leading uh, physical therapists uh, up in. Uh, up in the New York metropolitan area. And in the past, this guy, um, he still does. He does, uh, he does all the rehabs that one of the top orthopedic surgeons in that area only trusts him to do any of his rehabs for, on his, uh, pitchers or throwing athletes. And, uh, I did my, I gave my uh, presentation on triple spin, my thoughts on how to develop young pitchers and work with them. Um, as usual, you know, you can talk to any doctor, orthopedic surgeon. Um, doesn't matter where you go in the country. Uh, if you had the opportunity to talk to Dr. Andrews, you know, the 
the problem with young kids throwing and getting hurt consistently, obviously there's, there's something that's being done wrong. You know, some of the things we try to discuss here, uh, but one of the points that this uh, physical therapist made is that a problem that he sees is that even if all the training, all the preparation is correct, we don't nowadays put the player in enough game-like situations for them for their body to be conditioned to react and be able to handle such a high-speed activity. So when you, when you think back, um, when I was in the minor leagues with the, with the Baltimore Orioles, between starts, usually at home, because you had a little bit more time in your preparation. So for a home game, there were pitchers that instead of throwing their bullpen in between starts on the second or third day after the game, they threw live batting practice to their teammates. We just talked about that yesterday a little bit with uh, Mark Wiley and Will George. They were reminding our audience of the four-day rotations and the as you just said, throwing BP as a part of in-between starts preparation. Yes, Mark Mark Wiley was right there with me. He was he was uh, at the time he in spring training and instructional ball. He worked with all the pitchers, and during the season, he was the manager at, in Charlotte in Double A when I was with the Orioles. And uh, you would throw batting practice, okay? So you're you're being placed in game like situations. It's a game, you know. Now, you know, the adrenaline's not flowing like if you had, you know, 25,000 people in the stands or whatever it is. Yeah, but you still got to throw strikes, right? Control. Still got to throw strikes. Still got to execute pitches. Repeat your delivery. Show some stuff. Um, I would say that it's human nature that because it's live BP, you're going at it a little bit more game-like than if you were just throwing a bullpen. And there's a batter in there. You're, you're, you're trying to get as close to the game situation as possible. What, Jim, what about the, you know, the fear these guys have today of they, they, they don't pitch the contact, they try to get swings and misses? I mean, from a mental standpoint, th- does that alleviate that fear when you're throwing BP? Because they're going to be contacting BP. And, I mean, is there that, that psychology? I'm thinking I'm on the other side of the ball. I'm a hitter, but – as a pitcher, do you, is, it, is that a way to get over that fear as well? Well, I'll relate a story. So I'm in my first year of minor league ball. Um, my manager um, was a former catching prospect with the Dodgers, Lance Nichols. Uh, Lance caught uh, all those pitching phenoms for the Dodgers from Colfax to Drysdale to the whole crew. And, uh, a guy signs late. He came out of uh, the Junior College World Series, I believe, in the week down, in, in, week up at uh, Grand Junction. He set the home home run record. He he might have hit, hit eight home runs in a week. He was just on a tear. So he signed late with the Orioles. Um, one of the things that 
you know, I don't think it goes on nowadays, but it was kind of like, um, you know, maybe he squeezed a little bit more money out of the Orioles by not signing and then going to the tournament and hitting all the home runs or whatever. But um, you could kind of tell that, all right, let's uh, let's put this guy in his place kind of thing. Let's get him uh, acclimated to pro ball. You know, let's, uh, let's bring that ego down a couple of paces. Now that's a, uh, for lack of a better word, inference. That's a thought. That's an assumption that that I'm making just by being there and and just understanding. That happened a lot back then. It was like, okay, okay, you were a great high school player. You were a great college player. Okay, you were a great minor league player. Well, let let's uh, you know, not that it's a hazing, but it's a let's throw this guy into the heat of competition and see what happens. Yeah, it's baptism under fire. It's a rite of passage. Perfect. Perfect. So this is a left-handed home run hitter. And uh, manager Lance Nichols has him his first day that he received his first order of, you know, major league wood, as they say, his wood bats with his name on it and the whole thing. His first dozen show up in a locker. He's all pumped up as anybody would be. And Lance has him hit live BP off of me. He's lefty, I'm lefty. Um, back then, I usually didn't have a problem with left-handed hitters uh, because of the nature of my stuff. And I'm out there, and I'm doing my thing. And you're, and and even though it's live BP, you're you're learning to be more in a relaxed state. You're learning to get into the flow. It's it's not you know, a hundred percent that it's a game and you're starting to learn as a young pitcher that boy, that ball's really taken off. I mean, wow, my stuff is pretty good. I didn't even have to try hard. And, and, and this is where you start learning all these things that later becomes uh, you know, triple spin, so to speak. And, um, my fastballs, you know, back then Orioles had a ray gun and it was in the low nineties. There's a time, couple of times in a game I, on a ray gun, I was 94, 95. So in, in today's, they used to compare it then when the jugs gun first came out and jugs gun would be, you know, three or four miles an hour faster and then the stalker and different things. So, I mean, for argument's sake, I'm, you know, thrown in the upper nineties possibly. Um, but I had that gift most of the time it was a gift. Sometimes you ran into trouble when you were a young left-hander of uh, my ball never went straight. And on this day, it's riding, it's riding up and in on the left-hand hitter. And this poor guy steps into the plate and the first eight pitches I throw him, I crack eight of his brand new wood bats out of his dozen. Okay. So just out of sympathy, the manager Lance told him to sit down and take a break. Um, but as a pitcher, what you then learned in a situation is, you know what? That's almost as fun as striking somebody out. Um, fast forward a couple of years. Well, I guess one year. 
we are, I'm playing for the Hagerstown Suns in the Carolina League. I'm having a pretty good year, probably about three quarters through the season, near the end of the season. We're going in to play the Winston-Salem Red Sox. And after a long holdout, um, David Ledbetter, who led the NCAAs at Florida State in home runs, somewhere in the 40s, I think, which was like unheard of at the time. Uh, so he leads the nation in home runs. He signs a um, huge signing bonus at the time with the Boston Red Sox. Um, the interesting thing about it was that um, I had, uh, after I transferred out of Cornell to junior college to see if I could get drafted, I signed my national letter attempt to Florida State. So I met David Ledbetter. Um, on a recruiting trip after I signed my letter of intent. The assistant coach who recruited me was Coach Jim Morris, who later went on to have a Hall of Fame career at University of Miami. And um, and a teammate who led better on that, on that Florida State team was uh, Mike Ustremski, the son of Hall of Famer Carl Ustremski. And the father of uh, the Ustremski that's playing um, – Outfield for Giants played at Vanderbilt. Mike, Mike also. Yes. And uh, I know rumor goes, you know, you're on the road playing minor league ball. Rumor goes that um, the the holdout by Ledbetter became big news in Boston. Very similar to when uh, the Mets drafted Strawberry and there was a holdout and Dick Young wrote the article of, uh, you know, stop pinching Penny, sign the guy. He's supposed to be the next Ted Williams and the whole thing. Well, the, the rumor, the legend has it that Yaz said, uh, will you just sign the kid, please? If you drafted him, sign him. Why, do, why are we wasting time? Um, so David Ledbetter reports to the Winston-Salem Red Sox, and I'm pitching. It's an afternoon game. And I'm pretty sure the first two, it could have been the first three times, but I believe it's the first two times I strike him out. And like on three or four pitches. And he gets up his final time. Uh, it's close to the end of the game, eighth or ninth inning. And uh, my fastball runs in his hand and he swings. The bat shatters and the ball rolls. He's standing at home plate looking at his shattered bat and the ball rolls and stops in front of the pitcher's mound to where I just pick it up, look at him, and throw him out the first. That was more insulting to the hitter than striking him out. So what I learned in throwing batting practice that day, live BP, to that big lefty hitter, and then I learned in the game in that instance, and I bring up the Ledbetter situation because I met him at Florida State, awesome guy, was phenomenal. You know, the next day he faced one of our you know, six foot, six one righties, fastball, curveball, and hit three home runs in one game. So, I mean, the guy was uh, extremely talented. But you learn from those situations that, um, you know what? Pitching the contact, pitching the weak contact, breaking the guy's bat, um, that's a good thing. The problem in amateur baseball is they don't use wood bats. So, for many years, even on the scouting side, um, you could look it's in major colleges, especially 
guys weren't taught to pitch to contact because with that aluminum bat, you know, pitching the contact where you would have shattered that wood bat ends up, you know, a soft single to center field. Uh, so we have a whole, well, it's past one generation. I used to tell this story 20 years ago. We have a, I mean, when aluminum bats were first, the Easton Bat Company first started, you know, overtaking the mar- market, I was probably a senior in high school. So that's 1979. Um, so that's uh, 40, that's 60 years. <laughs> Six decades of, uh, of pitchers not pitching in contact because of facing aluminum bats. So, I mean, that's understandable as part of it. And that then, you know, let's go back to a, an old, an old saying many, many years ago in pro ball. And I'm, I'm going to have the numbers incorrect, but the gist of what they mean is what's important. It took a hitter 500 pats in a ball before he really got comfortable and learned how to swing that wood bat. Uh, it took a, a pitcher, um, approximately the same amount of time, let's say to speak, I don't know what it is in innings, to get comfortable pitching to that wood bat because they're used to pitching to, you know, metal bats, artifact, you know, aluminum bats, these modern day bats, graphite bats, the whole thing. So there in itself, um, you can see the difficulties that both pitchers and hitters have. Um, yeah, I'm coaching, um, uh, one th- last thing about the bats I'm coaching in uh, I'm managing in Italy and I bring over a big time power hitter from the Cincinnati Reds, Toronto Blue Jays, Cincinnati Reds, big lefty Pre- prestigious home run numbers in the minor leagues. Never really got the stick in the big leagues. I bring him over and now he's been swinging a wood bat for past eight years. And at that time in Italy, we used aluminum bats. So we all got the uh, original gray and green Eastons. It took him at least a month to recondition himself to swing the aluminum bat over the wood bat because the aluminum bat is balanced. The weight's balanced more throughout the bat and the wood bat, especially for the big home run hitters. They like the weight out in the barrel of the bat, so they throw the head. And uh, took him about a month. It was extremely frustrating. He was getting annoyed uh, tremendously. And then, like a month to the day, he had four home runs in a game. Um, I've told the story in the past of Casey Kochman would take BP when he was a senior in high school with a wood bat for all for all the pro scouts. And then one day, since I grew close to his dad, uh, he was a scout for the Angels and also a manager. At the time, I was with Toronto. I was a scout and a pitching coach. Uh, so in the summers, our teams played against each other. And I just said to him, you know, let um, let Casey just swing the aluminum bat for a week because everybody's looking for him to drop some bombs in the game, and it's just not happening. And then sure enough, after he just took BP with the aluminum bat for a week, he hit two bombs in a game, and everybody knew he's a first-round pick because they all knew it. They've seen it in the past. but. Um, so we've had now generations and generations of players that, um, have grown up with, uh, 
aluminum bats. So that causes a lot of difficulties that we're experiencing. No, I think that's a good point. My sons talk about that as well. I tend to promote the wood with them and and we, we go through that too. But the great show today, Jim. We've had a, we've had John and I, I kind of you threw extra innings today over an hour. Um, what do you want to leave the audience with? You want to tease them for next week and, and how can they reach you? Well, you can always, as I've said in the past, you can go to my website, RooneyBaseball.com or the Facebook uh, page at Rooney Baseball. Um, those are the easy ways to make contact, especially the, the website and send a message to me directly. Um, in closing, I, I would just like to summarize, you know, we started out with the article on the sweeper. You can read that post. Uh, another post I came across, we've spoken about it in the past, but a post last night I read was uh, new research came out and it wasn't specifically designed for baseball players, but it, the research was about multi-sports or early specialization in, in uh, youth development. And there's studies from Germany and all over the world on all kinds of different athletes. And, you know, the conclusion, besides overuse injuries, which happens much more in baseball than the other sports, uh, the repetitive nature of the game of baseball, then their conclusion is that, you know, it's most beneficial for youth development to not have early specialization. So that's one of my posts from yesterday. I think it would be interesting for everybody to uh, take a quick look. And, And sometimes, even if you're not into all the science and all the different things that you're reading in a research article, you just go to the conclusion. They're summarizing exactly what their thought process is and what they found. Um, I think that's a good thing. And then read the article about the sweeper because um, let's not go down that road when we're first trying to teach um, young ball players how to pitch and how to throw a baseball correctly. Um, let's look at the some of the factors we we looked at in the chart last week about age, about physical maturation, emotional and psychological maturation. Um, let's understand that at that age, fastball control and the start of a feel for a changeup will tell us whether we're repeating our delivery and getting to a consistent release point and give us a proper time on the baseball skill side to then start introducing the training and development of the proper curveball. Um, the other thing to finish is, um, I used to always go to ballparks and people would go, man, that guy's got a nasty breaking ball and it's a slider. And what people don't understand is a slider is not a breaking ball. Uh, I know that's extremely controversial and people are going to say, what the heck is this guy talking about? But the only baseball that, the only ball that you get in front of the baseball instead of through the baseball is the curveball. And the problem with sweepers and slurves and all kinds of new pitches that we're manufacturing based upon analytics and the numbers and the different things that were then become performance related. Then we start to blend the two. And I think when we blend the two, when we're trying to get through the ball, but yet around the baseball, uh, it's improperly to throw it correctly. And that's where we lead to injuries. I think well put. And I I hope our uh, young kids in the audience, parents in the audience, coaches in the audience, Pay special attention to this one because we are, we can call this our global pandemic in baseball where these, uh, there's just a rash of pitching injuries like we've never seen before. And I think you got to the root of a lot of the problem and really do a phenomenal job of, of, uh, I, I, I like in your, 
your research to complicated simplicity. It is intricate, but you have a way of simplifying it uh, for our very sophisticated audience, but also our layman out there. So pay attention to this one, guys. It's going to save your kid injuries, and it's also going to uh, help them grow at their own pace, which is important as well. So uh, with that, Jim, thanks so much for a great show. This was Jim Rooney, Toe the Rubber, episode 267. Thanks again to our 50,000, closing on 15,000. I want to get uh, get ahead of myself. We're getting close to 50,000 subscribers. You help push us from Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher to now. We're on the podcast Serve with iHeart uh, Radio, which is a great coup for all of our, our uh, podcast hosts. Uh, congratulations to you, Jim, on that as well. But uh, to our audience, tune in next week. We'll, we'll continue this conversation next week, um, not just with this show, with all of our shows. And with that, thanks so much, Jim. For, for what you did today. And audience, thanks for much for your support. We'll see you next time.